more than anything, it was just hiding from the issues. I mean, I didn't directly address it. I certainly would never have discussed it with my friends uh, and family if it, if it was ever brought up. I'm the only person in the family who ever brought it up with dad. It was just, it was a guaranteed blazing row within 20, you know, 20 seconds of it even being raised because I would have just got up and walked out or he would have got up and walked out. I just wasn't comfortable addressing it at all. Right. And my friend kind of knew, he kind of formed, I was, was always very lucky, I had very good friends, I must admit, and I had a pretty good circle of friends with being and spending so much time in bars, since obviously there's the ones that work there and people who sort of habituate in it. And I was very lucky with them, but they knew enough that they wouldn't really mention it. They also warned people off mentioning it to me because they knew I would change the topic of conversation. And if someone kept mentioning I would just cut them out of my life. Slimming Storage is branching out. I've created a Facebook group and over the next couple of months, I'll be building a community starting with live Slimming Story conversations. This is your opportunity to feature on one of the upcoming podcast episodes and share your weight loss journey. Are you with me? All you need to do is just click on the link in the podcast show notes or search for Slimming Stories within the group feature on Facebook. I would love to see you there. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Sinner Stories. I'm your host, Claire Oldham-West. I'm so, so excited for today's guest. Honestly, when I first started doing the podcast, I never in my wildest dreams would have thought that I'd be interviewing a guest that has lost over 21 and a half stone. I'm sure without even saying the name... <laughs> If you're within the Simming World community, weight loss community, wherever you are, I'm sure that you've probably heard of my next guest, Phil Kays. Phil Kays is from Belfast and he's done the deed. He's lost over 21 and a half stone, totally transformed his life. And I mean, the weight loss, the dedication, can you imagine the self-talk that he would have had to give himself on a daily basis just to get through every every moment on those scales and to chip away through those stones to get to his, his goal weight. But it did just that. It did that. And, you know, it's, it's a phenomenal amount of weight to lose. No doubt you've seen him on the magazines. He's a Slimming World member, but he's also appeared on media for Good Morning America. I mean... My goodness, that is a, that is an amazing thing. And has recently also appeared on BBC Nolan. So that was really good too. I think you'll all agree that wherever you are today, wherever your mind's at with your weight loss and fitness journey, whatever obstacles you think are in your way, please just listen to this episode. And when this podcast is produced on a, a Sunday... The Monday morning comes around, you know, those Monday mornings where we're like, right, okay, this is a week, I'm going to get it together. This is a week, I'm going to get my focus together. You know, what excuses can we give? What excuses are we giving ourselves on a weekly basis to say that we can't do this? That losing, whether it be one stone, five stones, ten stone, isn't possible because Phil has absolutely smashed it. He has smashed down every wall in terms of any story that you could tell yourself about not being able to achieve a goal because he's done amazingly, amazingly well. Is introducing Phil Kays to part one of his slimming story. Enjoy. I just want to start by 
asking about your your relationship with food so I understand as a, a binge eater and somebody that's you know used food as a comfort for many many years that this doesn't doesn't just start out, out of nowhere it's kind of a pattern that rotates and revolves over time and I'm really interested to understand at, at what point growing up did you start to recognize that food was more than just something to meet your hunger it probably started very early on. I mean, since going to some world, I basically I had thought about this stuff a bit more. Uh, and I started to look back and recognize stuff that I was doing. Um, like, just, I was always a fussy eater. Um, I followed my mum like that. She was very fussy as well. She didn't like certain foods. So, and mine was just vegetables. So it meant I was eating was eating a lot of uh, carbs, which isn't necessarily a problem, but I found that uh, I was eating takeaways too often, even as a even as a kid, I looked forward to that very much. So, and like sweets, you know, sweets were a treat, but one of the things, like looking back, I think didn't help me was my mum and dad bought a wee sweet shop, which, and I started like working on it and doing uh, paper runs in it. Uh, for them uh, delivering papers to the houses and I always had sweets with me always had sweets when I was out and about so because we had access to them you know they were just always there so I think I started using them very early as uh, comfort if I was feeling a wee bit down or a wee bit Mm. lonely out and about for a couple of hours delivering papers it just you know a bag of sweets and a sugary drink were very helpful so I just I think Honestly, my relationship with food started forming then. My the problems with food, but it, it just it developed from there. I think mainly because I just didn't know how to look after myself. I had no knowledge of how to eat properly, mm-hmm. and I, myself that my fussiness with food was a lifelong issue. It wasn't, and it wasn't my fault because other people had it as well. So right. So when you talk about being a fussy eater and recognizing that and knowing that you mum was also a fussy eater in terms of of your meal and and the takeaway from a young age what did your plate look like was your plate full of carbs was your plate full of salty food how how did your plate look at a young age uh salty and carbs basically (laughs) good guess um saturday evening uh, treat we used to go up to my grand's my mum's mum uh, and we basically we had soup and mine was more potato than soup and I added lots of salt to mm. it that was for lunch and then for dinner it was always uh, takeaway from the fish and chip shop so it was always a fish supper and it wasn't a child's portion either it was a fish supper you know a, a large fish supper so and again it was so it's deep fried it's lots of salt added so and that's exactly what the plate looked like and I look really really look forward to that every mm. single week um, that, that's it isn't it when you get together with your family I've got a similar story with my granddad when we used to visit but I refused to eat the fish and chips from the fish and chip shop so my mum and my aunts would all go there and get get this um fish and chip dinner but I demanded fish fingers and mashed potato because I couldn't stand even at a young age I couldn't stand the smell of fat but I too like you I had a really sweet tooth and to think about a child having access to a, a full sweet shop a full sweet shop 
I mean, that that is kind of living the dream, you know. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was a big film when I was growing up, and that that to me would have been it would have been must have been so so difficult to not yeah. not reach out. How, how can you not? How can you not? When we you know, I'd imagine like your friends would get so much money for for food for for treats like sweets, but you had it to hand full access. Limitless amount, you know. Obviously, it wasn't, but it just felt like it, you know. You just well, I'm a bit feeling a bit hungry, so there's a whole row of Mars bars there. There's, you know, there's just there was literally jars of sweets behind you in the shelves, yeah. so it wasn't good for you. And anywhere you went, the cinema, theater, you always got sweets. So your family and must have had a a love of of food to have opened a sweet shop and to to recognize the joy that you know sweets can bring can bring to your life but at the same time maybe they didn't see the the behaviors around food that did develop from going into the sweet shop and having all the access to the foods and then going to your your grands and having this fish and chip supper having the the takeaways did your mum ever stop and say actually we need to maybe cut back were there any conversations around that or was it just this is how we live this is how we are and this is what we eat um I think my mum my mum had her own issues with weight so she was up and down quite a bit but it wasn't something I mean we did discuss it as a family when I started putting on weight but it was, my mum would have defended me you know as in she recognised her own bad habits, I think, in me. Whereas my dad, it was just a guaranteed row if we started uh, talking about this, you know, because I was he, he could see I was putting on a bit of weight, that it was chubbier at times, you know, that it was chubbier than my friends. But it, that was really the start of the issues with food. So it meant then what I started to do was, I think I hid away. Um, so it was sort of secret eating. But mm. as a kid, occasional wee bits but I think that was problematic and it was the sort of the start of my problems with food was there I mean it wasn't the fact it was it just combined with the fact that I was a fussy eater already I really liked deep fried food I really liked sweets it was just a combination of things that was a problem growing up but there's very few photos of me we weren't a photo taken family but there are photos of me where I look a bit slimmer and then I look a bit chubbier. So I was obviously going up and down. And I remember I joined the gym for a year. I did uh, signed up to boxing for a few months. I was never very good at any of these things. and <laughs> Lazy. And, but even then, it was like when I was going to the gym, I mean, we, I would have went with a friend and we did actually do a workout. And then I would have went home and just rewarded myself. If I was grabbing food, it wasn't good food. So... No, no, never the good food. You, you talk about not knowing where to go with meals and, and where to start. And I understand that you went on to study at university and I've studied away from home. I, I went away to study. Student life can be, be quite, it can be quite interesting. It's supposed to be like one of those times that, you know, you go and study and everything's fantastic and, you know, you like live the life of like the, the friends <laughs> The friends, you know, sitcom. It's but it's not always yeah. like that, is it? So, so having gone away to study and being for the first time on your own and being independent to make the choices around food, how how was that? Talk talk me through how that how that felt and how, how it actually was in reality. 
I had big ideas when I went to university that I literally picked the furthest university away from home. <laughs> that might just for me, this was the start of my life. This was my start of my, you know, of being restricted and living in a small town. But now I'm free. I'm going to, you know, live away. But I just wasn't prepared for it. Plus the fact was, I mean, my grant took two months to get through. So I was living on handouts from my parents for the first two months. And the problem with the biggest issue was I couldn't prepare food cheaply. I had no idea how to cook. Um, I'd never learned how to cook. My mum worked in a she worked in a bar and she was a manager of a bar so she wasn't home to prepare meals so um i'd never learned at all never taught in school um so the only thing i knew was tomatoes and pasta and tuna literally so i lived off that but you get bored of that i mean after a week of that and you just get bored of it so i found i lived directly across the road from a supermarket the supermarket, the bad food was cheaper than buying fresh food because I was cooking for one. Well, I was just living off a multi bag of crisps that were they cost absolutely nothing. That's the thing; they were so cheap, and I was just living off junk. And then I was eating in the student union, which I don't know what student unions are like now, but they were cheap as chips. But everything was deep fried, mm, deep fried and beige. They love their beige. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love the beige. Venus at all and what I ate and plus the the culture as well is there's a bit of a drinking culture when you're a student there certainly was if you're an Irish student living abroad like I was <laughs> um, so my parents used to joke whenever they phoned the communal hall telephone they basically asked and whoever picked up the phone just basically said look he's probably over in the bar so they went over in the bar and nine times out of ten they'd find me there right. uh, so I than my parents um so yeah it was just i mean it was great but it was a disaster in terms of weight because i piled weight on very very i mean i was coming home free term then so every four months and like my dad would have basically said that he he saw he saw me putting on at least a stone every single time i came home at least a stone. and it was growing out of clothes so quickly you know and I didn't have the money to buy them so I was like just cobbling together clothes wherever I could find them. Having gone through that experience at university and then then recognising that actually you didn't know what you was doing and you, you couldn't cook and you was living off this food obviously at some point university comes to an end how was it at that point that you left university did that trigger anything for you to to lose the weight? No, uh, university ended up being a disaster for me because I had moved because I wanted to go abroad and I picked a university that allowed me to study abroad, but it wasn't good, to be honest. I think my mental health sort of deteriorated looking back at it. So I didn't do my final year. I dropped out. I don't even think I passed my, finished my exams in the third year. So I just left and went home and basically... I was on the dole for a few months. Um, so again, I had no money. So then when, when I got a job, it was sedentary. I was working in a, a video machine arcade. So I was just sitting, giving out change. Um, and it just meant I would just take my wages and go around and buy junk food. I either go to the supermarket around the corner and buy junk food just to eat during the day. 
again, it was probably comforting as much as anything. It wasn't even, by this point, I was almost as big as I was, I ever got. You know, I put on all my weight probably over the space of three years and basically lived like that for 25 years from then. So I just, I wasn't in a good place. I wasn't expending more energy because it was, even when I did go out, I was still drinking. I wasn't, I wouldn't have been like an alcoholic, but I would I would have had a few drinks whenever I did go out. But that didn't help because then you were sort of squeezing in meals. So I started doing, when I sort of started working, I ended up, I was doing running pub quizzes and trivia nights and I was doing a karaoke night. So you were living an antisocial hours. So I was away from home all day, wasn't preparing meals. So you just grabbed whatever food you could. Yeah. But in bars four nights a week at one point and I mean even if it's relatively healthy food if you, you, restaurant portions are going to be far more than what you're actually expending day-to-day energy wise so it's intense isn't it? like you say you had all these dreams for university yeah. you went away as far as you could to start this almost like a new life and then you, you're back I mean how did you feel having returned back and you you know you live in the same life almost and then when you when you left for university how, how did that feel for you uh it just felt like a complete failure you know i mean that's the way i felt i mean it had sort of been kind of ground down by the negativity of uh the university life um and i just i mean i wasn't happy at all but you just put that mask on of you know happiness for your friends and family but um yeah again by this point i wasn't eating meals with my family because even when i started work i wasn't at home i was away because i was literally going from work to a pub quiz and they never saw me eating and even if they did see me they would have known that it was just wasn't healthy but by this point it was i wasn't putting on any more meat i was i was as heavy as i was ever got Really, I mean, I'm sure it fluctuated a few stone either way, and every so often I would try and do something about it, but that was always a disaster as well. So, I don't know. I'm I'm trying to put myself in your shoes. How that would have felt on a, a daily basis for you, and and what kind of self talk you would have given yourself at at that point? I think probably more than anything, it was just hiding from the issues. I mean, I didn't directly address it i certainly would never have discussed it with my friends uh, and family if it if it was ever brought up i'm the only person in my family who ever brought it up dad it's just it was a guaranteed blazing row within 20 you know 20 seconds of it even being raised because i would have just got up and walked out or he would have got up and walked out and it was just we'd i just wasn't comfortable addressing it at all no. and my friend kind of knew the it kind of formed, I was, I was always very lucky. I had very good friends, I must admit. And I had a pretty good circle of friends with being and spending so much time in bars. There's obviously there's the ones that work there and people who sort of habituate in it. And I was very lucky with them, but they knew enough that they wouldn't really mention it. They also warned people off mentioning it to me because oh, they goodness. knew I would change the topic of conversation. And if someone kept mentioning it, I would just cut them out of my life. Yeah. I would go see them again or talk to them again. You know, I wouldn't have 
I wouldn't have confronted it. I only ever confronted one person about it and basically told them never to talk to me again about it. But that's the way it was. And I mean, it kind of, it helped me because they were very supportive of me, but mm. it kind of insulated me from dealing with it, with it myself. So, what, what was the fear? What was the fear of actually talking about it to your friends, to your family? I mean, family, obviously, and anything that involves, I guess, you, you know, your children being hurt, you're really protective, aren't you? So I'd imagine that from a for a father, they they can see, they can see the fact that this weight is going on, and they're wanting to intervene out of love. And obviously, there's that that tough love that can sometimes come through, especially I guess from a you know father to son relationship. But what was the fear? Talk me through the fear of of having those conversations. You've got your friends approaching you, you've got your family, but you're cutting them down. For me, it was just pure embarrassment. I mean, I couldn't deny I had a problem. I knew it was food. I knew I didn't eat healthy. But it was just the embarrassment of it. I just, I think it's it's a form of self-loathing. I mean, and then food I used as a, not only an emotional crutch, but I used it to punish myself. Like, occasionally you'd get shouted abuse at in the street by random strangers. Just random fat shaming like sometimes I've read about, you know, I was inspired by that, but it wasn't. It just, anytime that happened to me, I was just mortified. Mm. Particularly, I was with someone, you know, and I would just go straight back and eat because the eat it would okay. fill that hole. It felt like it at the time, but it, it absolutely wasn't, you know, and I know that now, but it did feel like it, that it was, it was a comfort to me, but I mean, it's it's just a spiral, so you yeah. you really do. And, and I think for somebody like yourself that has lost lost twenty two stone, and I, I hear everything that you've said, and I totally can relate with everything that you've said. And I guess you know, luckily for me, touch wood, I've, my weight hasn't got to a point where I've got such an amount to lose. What I really thought about before this interview was I know the struggle of losing weight. And I know the struggle of losing a bit of weight and then putting a bit of weight back on. And I know the struggle of losing quite a lot of weight and then getting compliments and then thinking, actually, I can relax it a bit. But to even begin to think that you've, you've lost such an amount of weight that you would have lost five stone and then you would have had thoughts around that, you would have lost 10 stone, just so, so incredible. So at what point did you, did you yourself make that connect to take action because obviously it wasn't it wasn't you know from from your friends trying to to get through to you or your family so th- did something happen for you to to decide to to take some action i mean it's it's a whole combination really to me because i i was having problems with my knees and i've been having them for years I blew the cartilage out in one of my knees and I was on heavy duty, like a steroid, basically to stop the inflammation. And, um, and I thought, I tried then. Now that was, I think, I don't even remember because it was so long ago that when I tried and failed, that was the first step because I started to realise that for years, like physically, I kidded myself that it wasn't impacting my life physically because I wasn't driving anyway. I never learned to drive. I didn't need to. I, I wouldn't have need. I wouldn't have bought a car even if I could have driven because I was living right beside a train station and I worked pretty close to a train station, so it was just easier. But there was just the whole thing 
combined. So I had my knee issues that were, weren't getting any better. I couldn't walk anywhere. I couldn't stand. I couldn't stand upright for any more than 20 minutes, half an hour at a time without my knees being really, really sore. And I would pay for that for days afterwards. So it just meant I couldn't go to concerts, couldn't fit in seats uh, in a venue, a theatre or anything like that. So I stopped doing that. I just stopped doing lots of stuff. What I ended up doing was once a week, twice a week, I would go down to the bar and I would grab a seat at the bar because I couldn't stand. And my friends would kind of then gravitate to me rather than anything else. So my life was just getting, it was just the quality of life was just getting worse and worse. Then there was a friend, a male friend of mine, Kenny, had, uh, he had joined up with Slimming World. And I knew what he ate because he ate the same rubbish I did. We shared lots of meals. He worked in a, he worked in a sweet shop at one point. Okay. At one point as well, completely separate ones from when I did. But he had put on a lot of weight as well. But uh, so he had started doing well. And it was kind of like, I knew what he ate. So part of me was starting to think, if he could do it, maybe I can. Like I'd tried before. I'd went to the doctors and joined up with a dietitian. And it failed immediately because it was once a month you got support from it. And that wasn't enough because I didn't want to involve my friends. I didn't want my family to know. So that contact wasn't enough for me. I needed that sort of network support around me. But when I started opening up to my friends, so first Kenny and then had another friend, Laura, who wanted to join. So I think once I started opening up to my friends, that's when I started I think getting ready, whether it was them ahead or rather to actually do something about it. And then the final factor definitely was my mum fell ill again. My mum had been ill several times. She had diagnosed with cancer and went into remission and then diagnosed again. Every time I heard, I did something about it and then I would fail, I would drop off and put any weight I'd lost back on immediately. Never big changes, by the way. These were all sort of maybe a couple of stone. You also mentioned about the when people notice that mm. you've done really well. One of my worst ones was I knew I'd fallen off the wagon and I knew I was starting to eat my bad habits had started returning. But people were saying, you know, it's like, God, you're looking really well. I haven't seen you in a couple of months. You've definitely lost a few stone. I had no idea how much I'd lost because I didn't even know where to get weighed. Because where do you get weighed at that sort of weight? Mm. You couldn't go in boots and stand in one of those go machines. There's that. The embarrassment factor of that alone would have just stopped me doing that. But, um, but yeah, my mum falling ill, opening up to my friends, Kenny and Laura, talking about the problems I was having with my weight. I think it just got me ready to a point where, even though in my head it was just it wouldn't work, and it would fail again. I think it just got me ready to to do something finally okay. about it. And, and it's ironic that the very thing that you'd been pushing back on you know, help from your friends, just seeing, you know, that, that friend have, have success and, and have, a, I guess, a, a similar life to you, so much so that, you know, we worked in a sweet shop, could see you in his, in his own slimming journey, I guess. You know, what, what a thankful experience to have that you was able to see that and, and to make those changes. I'm really interested to know the, the next part of your journey. What happened when you decided to take that action and you walked through the doors of your local weight loss group? 
Well, I was talking it over with Laura and she had picked out a group that would sort of, I was, I couldn't join Kenny's group because he, they met at like 10 o'clock in the morning in Bangor and I was working in Belfast until six o'clock at night. So I'd mentioned that to Laura and Laura, Laura had went and found a group. So that suited, it was like half seven on a Monday night. So we just kind of decided and it was just, Right, we met up for dinner beforehand because obviously you have one last blowout. Uh, <laughs> the that it was. So, <laughs> so we went up and walked through the doors. Even then, I was convinced that this isn't for me. She warned me of the format of it, about the image therapy. The she said, "Say, look, this might be a bit happy clappy for you." I think she knew exactly how I was about stuff like that. So. And it was just a case of, well, we'll go, we'll give it a go anyway. My first question to the consultant, Lindsay, who was there, was I actually said, look, I have no idea what a way. Can I ask how far these scales go up to? Because it's a terrible story. It really is a terrible story. And the only idea I'd ever had about how much a weighed was when I went to the doctors and the doctor brought in a set of scales and the scales went up to 20 stone. So I stood on them and obviously they just pinged straight to the limit. So he said, look, I've no, I, I don't have a set of scales that weigh any bigger than that. So what he went and did was he went and got another set of 20 stone scales and, he, and I stood with one foot on one set and one foot on another. And he said, that's accurate. But if you even it out, which should be able to guess at what it was and Right enough, one of them was like 17 stone, one of them was 18 stone. So he basically said, yeah. look, you're probably in the round. I don't know how this worked, but all I remember about it was I was absolutely mortified, the embarrassment. I could not wait to get out of that place. So I knew I was at least 35 stone probably. So I asked her what they went up to, and I think she said 50 stone. So I thought, oh, probably okay. But I thought it would be in around 40 stone. So. When I stepped on the scales, I was actually, this is weird, it was actually kind of pleasantly surprised that it was only 37 stone, which is, I mean, looking back, it's bizarre, but mm. part, like, kind of relieved that it wasn't more. I think it was that it was slightly less than I was expecting, now very, very slightly less, but I, I do think part of it was just the relief of knowing of, well, that's that's where I am. Like that doctor's experience, that was at least 10 years before that. So that's why I know I was roughly in or I my biggest size for a, a long, long time. Yeah. Uh, then the the next experience on the actual thing was you have to obviously, for anybody who's a Slim and War member, or I'm assuming it's the same in other weight loss groups, is you sit there and you do you have to wait you you weigh at the very end so you have to sit through the image therapy you get the new members talk so it was in the seats the plastic seats and my first thought was I'm gonna break that because I'd broken work seats so I was genuinely worried and I do remember like even sitting down on it trying to be as gentle as I could because you know that's the sort of scale I was you know mm. these are things where Unless you're that size, there's, there's, there's not many of us who get to that size and then actually do something about it successfully. But 
if you are that size, you, you do become conscious of all of these things. Mm. These are inconveniences that wouldn't even occur to most people, like sitting in a seat with arms. If I was with work and going to a training course, I requested a seat without arms because I was where I carried my weight. I still do. Where I carry my weight is my hips and my thighs. So if it's if I'm constricted on it, I can't sit comfortably. So and you can't sit comfortably for eight hours in a seat that you're not comfortable no. in. So you know, credit to you. You you walk through those doors and you got all all of this. You're just carrying all of this. You know, yeah. irrespective of your weight, you've got all these stories in your head. With the you know with the scales take my way with the the chair support me friends saying it was too happy clapping you've got all of this going around and yet you still you still walk through that door which is amazing and I understand what your friend means by happy clappy and often these groups are filled with lots of women and it's very yeah I, I totally get you and if, if you're not used to talking about I would say your emotions because often and I'll just explain this for people who aren't aware of our slimming group works or in particular slimming world. You go to the group, you'll get weighed and you sit around and we talk about how your week's been. And then sometimes, you know, you talk about how your week's been and maybe you've had an emotional week, something's happened. And then, you, you know, people will cry in group. People will, you know, tell their life stories often in group. And it, it's almost like a, a family in a way because you, you get to know one another's stories don't you and how was it for you so you, you've gone to group you've, you've got weighed and you've had your first week and then it's your turn how how was that moment of being in the spotlight I, I was very I was very lucky because when I started I still couldn't cook so Laura had made all these meals and basically gave me one of each of them she had been in Summer World before. She knew exactly what she was going to do, tackle it, do all the batch cooking, the prepping. Because, and so she gave me one of each of her meals and basically said, look, try them. Don't worry about what you're eating. Just try and eat healthily. Have that for your dinner each day. She gave me like overnight oats as a breakfast as well, which I loved, which absolutely amazed me. It was the first thing I tried. It was just like, well, this is delicious. Yeah. You know, they have that. You know, I could eat that. And like all the meals now, like she, she knew what I ate. So she basically made like chilies, spaghetti bolognese, all the stuff. There was beef and red wine that I remember with the mashed potato. And she'd hidden all the vegetables in it. So she'd like basically blended mushrooms <laughs> the way through them. And you wouldn't even have known they were there. So she actually gave me then the list of ingredients. But I ate them all. And there was a couple of weren't that wasn't that fussed on. But uh, so I did my dinners. Then for lunches, I basically had soup, which I would have had normally. It was a tomato soup and then a lentil and bacon soup. So that did me the entire week. And then I do remember going back the next Monday. And it was a case of, well, like, I mean, didn't really feel any different. And, and I was also conscious that I'd written everything down. But I'd also some crisps and biscuits and work and it was a case of well I'm not throwing them out you know that's a waste so I did like ration them but I would have had like a bag of crisps with like a small bag of uh, I remember one of them was McCoy's so I had a six pack of them so I had like three bags left so three of them during the week and then I had some biscuits so I rationed them out of one a day um, so I went back and was like well you know 
I think I've eaten pretty well, but I've never been hungry. It was the bit that amazed me. It was like, I was never hungry. If I was hungry, I ate. But it was just basically advised to fill up with whatever fruit you have. Uh, so I just ate, I think I had about 30 apples that week. It was a ridiculous <laughs> point. <laughs> but I stood in the and I'd, I'd lost 11 and a half pounds the first week, which was like, that blew my mind. It was just like, really? I mean, anybody who's done Slimming World will know that if you follow the plan, you will have a great result in the first week, particularly if you go and absolutely stuff yourself before you weigh the first time anyway, <laughs> which we yeah. did. We went out, horse blew out. It was seeing the result immediately. It was just like, well, that was, it was a real bonus. It was a real buzz from it. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the, they announced that night uh, in the group and everybody really, I mean, Yes, I was the only man in it, um, but there was I was the only man who stayed. There was quite, there was two or three men who came through and weighed and went straight away, um, but I was the only man who stayed, and it was just a case of like, I give this a go. But I actually surprised how much I enjoyed it. And you talk about the you mentioned about you, you do the format of you get invested in other people's stories. Mm. Other immediately invested in mine as well, you know. So. I definitely felt that sort of community from it, which is weird because I, uh, my friend Laura still absolutely hated it. <laughs> she still hates the format. But uh, I actually found that I enjoyed it. And I, I definitely got ideas from it. And I think that's where it was key for me because when I've talked about going to a community dietitian before and you were basically given a seven-day menu, um, you, it was explained in some world that it was more flexible and that you shouldn't, there's nothing off plan, nothing off menu. There's nothing, but you have to make up your own what you want to eat. Yeah. Um, I think that flexibility was just a, a massive thing for me, but uh, definitely the community aspect of it, because you got feedback immediately, which you, from the dietitian, because you saw them a month later and you were in for 10 minutes and then out again. So, doesn't yeah. work does it that doesn't doesn't work and it's about behaviors and, and changing behaviors and, and straight away you know you've got that support from your friend which is fantastic and and I guess for the first time would you say that was the first time ever that you actually ate a nutritionally balanced meal I mean I would have had the odd one occasionally probably by accident you know, but, <laughs> uh, yeah certainly the only time I would have had like five meals, main meals during yeah. the day, like during the week, sorry, not five main meals a day, um, where I would have had like all of the meals would have been pretty healthy. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. So like I I noticed after three weeks, three weeks, the difference in energy of how I felt as a result of that because I was just putting eating better. So after that first week, all the crisps and the biscuits were gone and I didn't replace them. I didn't buy the wee hi-fi bars or any sort of low-fat snacks that they all, they all talk about. I went cold turkey on them. But after three weeks, I just felt it felt amazing. It really was. It was bizarre. Um, the energy levels just went through the roof. And it was, I mean, I'm still, at this point, I'm 35 stone, you know, 35 stone plus. But I couldn't get over how alert and sharp my mind was compared yeah. to where I was in three weeks beforehand. I mean, my, my sleeping pattern completely changed in the space of three weeks. I oh. went from 
going to sleep at one o'clock in the morning, struggling to get out of bed at half eight uh, to get into work. To I would have woken up at half six, and it was as soon as I woke up, I felt awake. Um, whereas before, it would have been snooze button again, 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 again to try and sort of wake up in installments. And I would have had uh, like three alarms all around to try and force out of bed. <laughs> wow, what can I say? What can you say to that, you know? There's many people that will say, okay, diets don't work. In particular, things like Weight Watchers and Slimming World, they, they don't work. People lose the weight, then they put the weight back on. Phil, it's testament to show that it does work. It does work. And like with any weight loss plan, any diet, it's the same for every weight loss regime, that it doesn't necessarily matter how the plan works, whether you're following keto, Atkins, Slimming World, any of those plans it starts with what you decide to commit to in your mind. The process of change does not happen on your plate. The process of change starts from you deciding that you're in control and you're not going to let food control you anymore. That's where the process of, of change starts. And I'm so glad that Phil's been able to come on here and share his story. It's such a, it's such a hero's journey and it's turned his life around. So I hope this has inspired you into Monday Every Sunday I publish a podcast episode and and Monday comes around and Monday's that day where often people will be right, okay, I'm on it, I've got a new week, I'm on it, I'm on it, I'm on it. But what I would ask you is, what have you put in place to be on plan? What changes have you committed to to make sure that your week has got your focus to get the results when you step on that scales or when you measure or when you step into those jeans that you're wanting to fit for summer. There needs to be something that changes, as simple as that. If you do the same as what you did the week before, the week before that, the month before that, the year before that, there's, there's going to be no change. It starts with taking action and deciding that food isn't in control. You can be in control of that food, and look what Phil's done. Just look what he's done. Over 21 and a half stone, absolutely amazing. So, so proud of him, so pleased. And I know this is going to inspire you. I mean, goodness, this is just, yeah, it's it's on another level, isn't it, of inspiration. Have a great week. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you follow the link in my show notes, you will see that I've now got a Facebook group. Click on that link. I would love to see you in there. There's lots of changes coming up for me. This month in particular, and I'll tell you all about those very, very soon. But come into the groove. I would love to see you there. Until next time, have a great week and take care.